This is the FS Tech Podcast. To kick off our brand new podcast channel, here's one we made earlier. In April, we teamed up with Nice Actimize for a virtual panel discussion about the challenges that financial services firms face in keeping up with strict anti-money laundering and fraud regulations, while continuing to innovate and remain commercially competitive. I'll hand over to me from the past now to introduce our guests and explain the topic in more detail. Hello, and welcome to this webinar on financial crime and the tech used to tackle it. I'm Peter Walker, the editor of FS Tech, and from our coverage of the industry, it's clear that firms are expected to meet a range of strict financial crime regulations, regardless of their size and sector. But for those with smaller budgets and fewer resources, this is increasingly difficult as the rules and threats continue to evolve. Criminals have shown sophistication by targeting organizations that have vulnerabilities in their controls. In order to keep businesses and consumers protected, it's clearly crucial to leverage modern technologies and implement programs that incorporate things like artificial intelligence automation and cloud flexibility in a practical manner. So we're going to discuss how to meet anti-money laundering and fraud management obligations while empowering core business units to remain competitive and innovative. To do that, today we've got a range of experts on the subject. So we'll be speaking with Rebecca Marriott, Vice President for Risk and Compliance at Tide, David Savage, a partner for financial crime at Stewart's Law, Adam McLaughlin, Head of Financial Crime Solutions for Nice Actimize, EMEA, and Robert Tharl, Fraud and Authentication Subject Matter Expert, also at Nice Actimize, EMEA. So, to the questions. To start us off, um, it would appear that criminals have been taking advantage of the current coronavirus, coronavirus crisis with staff remote working. Uh, I wonder what's the best way to maintain threat monitoring and operational resilience? Uh, it's Rob Farr here from Nice Actimize. So, if I start, um, we're seeing a whole range of things happening. Lots of um, lots of scams uh, for things. So, uh, that are taking advantage of this situation, um, and that. But also, we're seeing some substantial changes in um, how genuine customers operate as well, and that that does have an impact on um, people's models and rules. So. It, they do need to be flexible and start uh, amending things um, pretty quick um, and take, trying to make sure they prioritize which bits of the processing are important so that they can uh, increase their capacity there. Um, one thing I would say, I've been chatting to a number of people um, in the last couple of weeks and in the UK at least what we're starting to see is actually despite all these increases in scams uh, going around, um, actually, the, the impact of the lockdown on um, on the mule networks is actually being quite restricting um, as they're struggling to get the large sums of cash out of banks in uh, uh, because many of the branches are shut, um, and also not being able to move uh, move the the cash across borders in the same way they are. So actually, we've seen an actual reduction in volumes around uh, muling recently, um, which does lead to the potential issue of uh, a big tsunami of, of, uh, of, of cases once the, uh, 
once the lockdown comes out. So I think firms need to need to try and prepare and create as much capacity for uh, when that finishes uh, as possible. Okay. Anybody else have any um, views? Yeah. Hi. Yeah, Becky uh, from Tide. Uh, that, that's interesting because we've also seen a slight decline in our normal sort of um, fraud typologies, such as money mulling. Um, and I think a lot of the criminals are probably slightly regrouping and thinking of their new strategies. Um, and we definitely expect to see an increase of fraud typologies related to coronavirus um, and sort of needing to adapt some of our controls to, to be able to identify them where possible. I think a big part of this also is just educating customers. I mean, we've done a blog post, for example, um, and trying to just really educate customers as to what some of these, um, these sort of latest typologies might look like or what people seeking to take advantage of the situation might be trying to do. So there's definitely an education piece for our customers there as well. Hi there, it's David Savage here from Stuart. Uh, I think that's absolutely right, Becky. Uh, I think for, for businesses in particular, there is going to be uh, an increasing amount of scrutinization on, on or sorry, scrutiny, sorry, of, of what they have done in relation to these new identified threats. Uh, both Interpol and the NCA have very recently um, publicized information regarding some of the, uh, the typologies that they're seeing and, and also what they're expecting businesses to do. So uh, in, in respect of businesses, you're going to see a, an increase, I should imagine, in, in mandate and invoice type fraud, which means that businesses are going to have to to verify the information and instructions that they receive, make sure they've got internal processes that are robust enough to, to handle this, this influx of potentially fraudulent activity uh, and make sure that any kind of sensitive documents are, are properly checked uh, for, for validity uh, and, and then go back to clients where necessary if there are any forms of, of concern that they might have. Hi, it's Adam here from Nice Actimize. I'd just like to um, move away slightly from the, sort of the criminal side, but look at the operational side. So I think right now in the current environment, uh, as you mentioned in the question, a lot of staff, um, if not all staff, are now remote working, which means ordinarily the compliance function on the main, they all sit in one office, everyone are quite free to talk to each other and, and share ideas. And if they've, if they've got concerns about a particular transaction, it's quite easy to share that idea with other other people. I think with remote working comes the challenge of, of isolation. Um, it's you and a computer um, primarily. And I think it's up to organizations to put quite stringent, rigid controls in place to make sure that that isolation doesn't turn into separation and it, people working independently and, and not properly looking at the fuller picture in terms of the alerts they're investigating and making sure that the dispositions that they put on alerts um, and investigations are appropriate, accurate, and the quality still remains. And so I think there's a danger there that people being isolated without that network and that network being maintained, quality, there's a risk that quality might go down in terms of the investigation output, which means that potential money laundering scenarios or, or criminals might get through the net and what should have been alerted and should have been starred on might, might actually be closed out because people aren't sharing ideas with each other. So I think that's, that's one, one element that has to be considered. And I think effective management, maybe effective technology and controls, which should help mitigate those risks um, with a proper quality and audit process. Uh, and I think the other challenge as well is, is with thickness. Obviously, um, the virus is, is doing really bad things globally and people are getting sick. Um, and there is an element of resilience that has to be maintained with organizations. Regulations aren't going away. Regulations are still there and criminals are still operating. 
uh, and so everyone has to be on the ball and have to still maintain that quality and that, that assessment of, of alert. And I think if too many people get ill, then that affects how many alerts can get worked on a day-by-day basis. And it's, it's potentially having to then readjust, you know, not just working on the alerts based on when they came through and the timing, but also looking at what is more likely to result in a star, what is more likely to be a, a positive alert rather than a false negative. And I think there's also that management as well around managing the alert volumes and managing what's more likely to result in stars and, and concentrating those ones rather than taking them as they come in um, on a time basis. I think yeah. I think that's absolutely right, and that's something we're certainly conscious of at Tide, where we have our you know, KYC teams, our financial crime teams, um, to your first point around they they are in isolation at home, whereas normally they may have sort of discussed a case amongst each other, asked for opinions and shared learning. Um, I think we, we've certainly tried to take steps to sort of um, ensure that we almost over-communicate. We do pick up on any trends or themes that we're seeing, because that can all be missed when people are working individually. We're also stepping up our second line um, quality control checks as well to make sure that actually, you know, we really are identifying if there's any issues. That's certainly um, something that we've, we've changed our stance on quite quickly, given the um, very quick remote working that we implemented. Um, but I think, I think that's absolutely correct. Okay. Yeah, it's, it, we could almost do a whole a whole uh, webinar on, on on the current state of things. I suppose one of the most uh, recent um, regulatory changes was the AML five rules that came into force um, in January. Um, they will be having an impact on on firms uh, across the sector and 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 further. Um, I'm wondering what's your assessment of of the current state of um, financial crime regulation, especially. Uh, given the AML5, um, David, maybe. Um, certainly. I, I think the, the current financial crime framework is uh, getting increasingly robust. Indeed, I think there's a, a, a smorgasbord of, of financial crime regulation and, and uh, legislation that uh, the companies now have to be aware of. You've you mentioned the, uh, the Fifth Money Laundering or Anti-Money Laundering Directive, uh, which was transposed into uh, UK law on, on the 10th of January this year. Um, but you've also obviously got the, the Fourth Money Laundering Directive, which uh, was a, a wholesale change in uh, the approach to, to money laundering and required quite a lot of um, systems and controls changes by firms um, back when it came into force. Uh, you've got uh, acts like the Criminal Finances Act, the Proceeds of Crime Act, um, the Bribery Act, uh, and indeed the, the Sanctions and Anti-Money Laundering Act, um, which deals with the UK's uh, sanctions uh, framework post-Brexit. Uh, and then you've obviously also got all of the, the sanctions regulations at, a, at an EU level that the companies are, are forced to comply with, and indeed uh, US legislation uh, in relation to sanctions as well. So there's a lot for, for companies to, to, to deal with when it comes to financial crime uh, regulation. Uh, looking specifically at the Fifth Money, uh, Fifth Money Laundering Directive, which, as I say, came into force uh, at the beginning of this year, uh, there, there are a few changes of which companies should be aware. Uh, number one is that there are additional high-risk factors which will uh, require uh, enhanced due diligence in respect of customers. And obviously, companies need to remember that that due diligence should be occurring not only at the beginning of, of relationships, but also uh, during the, um, the course of that relationship. Um, high-risk third countries uh, also would now be a, a high-risk factor. Um, you've also got uh, e-money -E thresholds for, for customer due diligence, uh, which have changed. 
Um, firms are required to update their records relating to the beneficial ownership of corporate clients. So much more information in relation to UBOs is now being expected uh, and also an obligation to, to report discrepancies in uh, information as between what you hold on your, your records and, and that which is contained at a company's house. Uh, and finally, I think quite importantly, notwithstanding uh, the, the current status, uh, is, is, is crypto assets. Crypto assets have historically not fallen within uh, money laundering regulations, but businesses now carrying out certain crypto asset activities uh, need to comply with the money laundering regulations in relation to those activities as from uh, the beginning of this year. So, uh, as you can see, there, there is a, a number of changes, not, not a huge amount, but a number of changes which, which companies need to be aware of. Uh, and, and I think that that's only going to, to continue. Uh, we've obviously got the, the Sixth Money Laundering Directive, which will come into force in December of this year. Um, as to whether the UK is going to implement that or not, I don't think a decision has, has currently been made. But, but that's going to increase the, uh, the expectations of, of, of companies and, and banks uh, to include uh, a unified list of predicate offences. So those are the, the underlying offences in relation to money laundering uh, and an extension of, of criminal liability to, to legal persons. Uh, and that's quite an interesting one, actually, because there has been talk uh, for a number of years now in the UK of, of a corporate offence of failure to prevent economic crime. Uh, and it's currently just sitting sitting around and it hasn't made its way onto the statute books yet. But I, I do think that maybe that's something that might uh, might suddenly uh, crop up again once we, we get through this, this period of uncertainty. So whether or not the, the UK subscribes that, I don't know, but it might be that the UK, in seeking to have some form of regulatory harmony with the EU, will in any event look to, to create a, a new offence of, of failure to prevent economic crime or failure to prevent um, money laundering. Okay. Um, uh, Rob or, or Adam, I, I wonder how prepared do you think kind of financial institutions of, of different sizes and sectors are for um, AML5 and, and, and some of the other rules that, that are impacting them? Um, I, I, can, I can start on that one um, if you like. Um, it's Adam Clarkson here from NYSACTIMIZE. Uh, so I think it's really important first to state, um, and moving on from what David was saying, is you know, whether you're a big tier one or whether you're a challenger bank or whether you're a buy-side firm, whoever you are in terms of the financial sector, all firms, whether you're big or small, have to comply with the regulations. Um, there's no nuance that, you know, if you're a small firm, you don't have to do that, or, you know, if you're a bigger firm, you don't have to do that. Everyone's under the same bucket. Everyone has to comply with the regulations um, from um, an AML perspective. And how they do it, will depend on the size of the organization. So it will be it will be different. So bigger organizations are naturally more complex and they've got a lot more products, um, a lot more to consider. Um, and the smaller organizations can be a bit more nimble. Um, and so what I'll say is the in my view, the larger organizations, and I'm talking the tier one, tier two organizations, uh, are much more mature in the, in how they come across these um regulations and how they implement policies and controls to comply with the regulations. You know, they've been around a long time, these guys, so they have got battle scars. You know, I'm not saying they all have, but I think a lot of them have previously been fined for various failings of some one sort or another. Um, mm. And that, that just comes with the age and the size that they are. Um, and, you know, given that they are older in the tooth, so to speak, and they have got battle scars, it doesn't mean they always get it right. They still get it wrong. And I think it was only last month that there was a, a firm in, in the Nordics 
um, that got a $319 million fine for AML failing. So even to this day, firms are still getting fined for getting it wrong. The big guys have bigger pots of money to throw at compliance um, if things do go wrong to, to up the game and, and put in the controls they need to put in. They generally have more staff, they've generally got more resources, and they can generally you know, move quite a lot quicker if they, if they have to, because um, they have all that back in. The smaller organizations, um, you know, the Challenger Bank, um, the Challenger Financial Institutions, and you know, some of the smaller investment firms, um, uh, I'm not saying them all, but, but they're less, less mature than the, the bigger guys um, in terms of their policies and procedures. And some organizations I'm aware of have had senior compliance officers who haven't historically come from compliance. So they've been in the bank since inception and they've just grown up with the bank and all of a sudden they, they become chief compliance officer. And that obviously generates um, some risk um, that they don't quite know what should and shouldn't happen. Um, with it, and I think historically, not not necessarily the case now, but some of the organisations historically had problems getting experienced staff through the doors because the experienced staff generally wanted to work with these bigger banks. I, I don't think that's so much of the case now. I think you know staff want to work with, with each other organisations um, more so than they, they used to probably several years ago. Um, the smaller guys have often smaller budgets, I have seen this, you know, they, they haven't got millions and millions to throw at technology solutions or millions and millions to throw at new staff if, if things do go wrong. So they have to be a bit more nimble. They have to adapt um, and find alternative technology solutions in order to comply with the regulations that they have. Um, but I think what, good, what smaller firms are good at is they are smaller. They're, they've got less complex structures, which means they can be a lot more nimble. They can adapt a lot quicker. And if things change in terms of regulation, they can put controls and policies in place a lot quicker. There's less hierarchical structures going through to get things approved. So I think they have got their benefits, um, and they they have they are adaptable, and you know they can move with the times a lot quicker. They're not like they're not a big oil tanker, and um, it takes a long time to to change. So so I think you know overall, in in summary, different size organisations have different challenges, um, and I think. Smaller firms are a lot better at adapting and a lot more nimble. And just to, just to give you a feel for how that actually worked um, for us at Tide when we had the fifth anti-money laundering directive, it was exactly as you say. We don't have huge layers of management. It wasn't hugely complicated. There was training that we were able to sort of write and deliver very quickly. Um, our risk and compliance committee uh, is we meet monthly. We have ad hoc meetings when required. We can get policy changes implemented very, very quickly. We can have process changes made quickly too because our firm is that much smaller. Um, so we definitely, um, definitely, definitely benefit in that regard from being a smaller company. Um, and I think also for the fifth AMLD, there weren't a huge amount of changes that applied to us anyway. Um, I think sixth AMLD we'll probably have to think about in a bit, a bit more detail. But yeah, it's a perfect example of what you were just talking about. And I think as well as, as well as fit MLD, you've also got um, things like the uh, contingent reimbursement model, which because it's uh, now putting requirements on beneficiary firms as well as the outgoing ones, and whilst it's not a, a full regulation, it's still a voluntary code at this time. I think there's um, we, we're certainly seeing the, the larger banks who need to comply with it, putting things in place and actively calling for um, that to be made a 
uh, an actual regulation and bring the, the smaller smaller firms into the, that, that regulatory piece there, some regulatory capture happening. And that's going to be quite key for, for reducing um, some of the impacts of, of, of the authorised fraud, but in, you know, very much in the mule space on the beneficiary side. So I think we'll, we've got more to see in that space happening too. I think uh, I think you alluded to my question there already, Rebecca. But um, I'm wondering what practical changes you guys have made um, to maintain compliance with the, the, the variety of rules that are out there. Yeah. So I think, unsurprisingly, I'm going to say technology. Um, but technology is really key for us. We we're a business of sort of 400 employees, and you know we don't want half of them to be in compliance functions. So we use technology, we automate where we can. Some examples of that are things like automating our stars. So we don't automate the whole thing, but we automate sections one to four so that we can actually um, have analysts spending time doing analysis and looking at networks and connections um, and then writing their suspicion in the star as opposed to just um, keying in information. I'm a big advocate of using buttons for button jobs and brains for brain jobs. So where we can, we will automate. Um, our KYC is process is also a very good example of that. So one of our sort of unique um, our unique features at Tide is that we can sign someone up for a business account very quickly. And we do that through the technology, through a series of APIs, through trying to obtain as much information about the customer so that we don't have to get it from the customer to help improve that user experience. And then making sure that we've got very um, or slick, slick as possible processes thereafter um, if they do need that manual touch point. Um, there is, of course, loads more to do, though, and it's always a challenge with a new business, with a growing fintech, prioritization. Um, product teams want to build cool functionality and really nice features for our customers. Um, we want to build great compliance tools and great um, automation or great um, systems and controls um, our side. So it's that. It's always a matter of prioritization and trying to um, you know, show the business the value of the things we want to build. Um, I mean, another example would be the transaction monitoring, obviously, um, having that system, uh, you know, having machine learning to try and be able to pick up on suspicious activity um, as quickly as possible and reduce our false positives is really important, as it is for, I'm sure, all firms that have transactions. So I think there are um, there are a number of ways that we're able to um, have fairly lean um, uh, compliance function. But by that, I would still say, you know, we do have um, we do still have a good amount of analysts and so on. Um, but scaling it, scaling operation is always a challenge for, um, for the challenges. Uh, it's a skill and it's an experience I think not a huge amount of people have been through, although more and more um, as we are um, seeing lots of businesses grow. But how do you know when you need to hire new people? How do you know when you need to implement a new piece of technology? Um, you know, that's, that's the real challenge um, and the fun of it, I guess, as well. Um, whereas for incumbents, I don't think, or, or big, bigger banks, they don't have that scaling challenge so much. Um, but yeah, I think things like, you know, I used to work at HSBC um, and I sort of left just as GDPR came in there and having seen things like GDPR being implemented at HSBC, I definitely do not envy any of the teams that had to work on that sort of project. Um, but I think it'll also be interesting to see how we sort of come out of this economic challenge at the moment. Often compliance functions can be the first to go um, with redundancies or, or things like that. So. Again, for some of the bigger banks that do have very, very large compliance functions and will have been forced to digitalize what they offer um, through the current situation, um, it will be very interesting to see what comes out the other side of it. Um, and I think also, also very interesting to see where 
maybe in a few years' time, we'll find some some um, big sort of uh, AML failings or issues that occurred at this time because people were, you know, maybe not prepared or not focusing on the right thing. Um, it, it will be very interesting to see again what this uh, sort of immediate lockdown has um, has caused or maybe a ripple effect further down the line. I agree with that completely, Rebecca. If you look at what happened following the, the global financial crisis, there were uh, a plethora of global investigations in relation to conduct um, uh, and, and failings that various banks of various sizes and various jurisdictions um, had. Uh, and, and I think that's absolutely going to be the case uh, coming out of this particular crisis as well. Okay. I'm wondering from the kind of tech tech provider um, side of things, um, what specific solutions are there kind of out there um, to help with different financial crime threats and uh, compliance? Um, Adam, maybe. Sure. Um, so I, I think first it's really important to, you know, just further on what I said earlier on is, like I said, all firms have to comply with regulations and a lot of firms like Rebecca just touched on with her answer, uh, are looking for technology solutions to help them meet their compliance needs. For the, the reg tech, the, the challenger, the, the smaller organization, the technology solution has to be adaptable. Um, it has to be, um, as Rebecca touched on, it has to be scalable. Um, so unlike the big guys, the challenger organizations are generally looking to grow and, and sometimes grow quite rapidly. So the solution has to be capable of scaling to the business needs as that business grows, as it takes on new customers, new products, enters new jurisdictions. And that's an absolute critical part of any uh, tech solution. And, and finally, I think it has to be an attractive price point uh, because these challenger organizations don't have millions and millions of pounds to spend on new technology solutions. That some might, uh, but my experience is they often don't have significant deep pockets uh, just spend lots of money on, on solutions. So there has to be, it has to fit those three buckets, but and and obviously be an attractive price point. And in terms of the actual solutions themselves, again, there's there's three parts of the solution that I think are really really important for all organisations, and especially say for these these challenger firms. Firstly, it's absolutely critical in my opinion that there's a consolidated view of a customer. In order to understand the risk of the customer, in order to understand what is normal and not normal for that customer, you have to have a holistic view. Without a holistic view, you might miss some key information uh, that might make a non-suspicious alert suspicious. So there has to be some sort of what I would call a hub. There has to be a case management hub, which ingests all internal and external data, which helps to enrich that customer profile. So very, very quickly, in the best case, you can look at this hub, uh, look at the customer, and look at all the activity around that customer, what they've been doing, their transactions, what products do they have, you know, what's happening outside, you know, is, is there adverse media in this customer? There has to be a way to centralize and consolidate that information. But that, that's really, really important. It makes a quicker decision, makes a more accurate decision for the investigator, and ultimately, it will result in a better outcome, whether that, whether that activity is suspicious or not. So I, th I think that's the main the main one. Within that is automation. So investigations, and especially having come from an investigations background, historically is very manual. So 
you, you go off to a third-party system to get a first media. You might then go and do a, a pets and sanctions um, search. You then might go and do a Google search for any additional information on the customer. You might search third-party databases for any other information, you know, about addresses or whatever it is. It takes time, uh, and it can take some significant time. Most time on investigation could be just searching for data. So if you can automate a lot of that manual processing and bring it into this, this hub, as I like to call it, that can speed up the investigations as well. So not only is it making the investigations micro, but it's making them quicker. So the investigators can deal with the alert, but also then potentially have time to look at more proactive activities. So start doing manual automatic reviews or look at manual alerts, which are more likely to result in, in SAR. So it, all in all, it, you know, it, makes, it, makes, it creates better efficiency, better outcomes, and you know, speedier, um, more consistent decisions. The, the second one I want to touch on is AI. Um, and it was mentioned, it's been mentioned a few times um, throughout this um, session, but AI is it's the future and it, it is here now. Um, and when I say I also mean include machine learning. AI can help in a number of ways. First, it can, it can help better segment your customer base. Um, and so rather than just saying you've got customers segmented based on age or based on income, you can you start start to really look randomly at those customer segments and work out you know, what customers fit together. And if you can work out what customers fit together more so than just looking at age and, and potentially income, you can then look at what's normal versus abnormal in those segments. You can then, over the top of that, start looking at things like normal detection. So looking at the unknown unknowns, if, if you like. Um, and the way I view it is everyone uses rules, and rule detection is here to stay. I, I don't think rule detection is going away. It's, it's absolutely critical in any electron function. So you've got rules, you have then a breach of a threshold, and it creates alert. I, I think that's absolutely critical to have, and it, it's going to stay, in my opinion anyway, for, for the foreseeable future. And, and I see that as almost a safety net. Um, so the safety net is there where you've got a rules and a threshold um, type system, and you augment that with AI, which really starts to get delve into the weeds and say, right, is this normal or is this not? You can start really looking at the that really ab abnormal activity on the customer, which a traditional rule might not necessarily pick up on. And I, I think that helps uh, reduce the false positives, um, and especially when you can do that with machine learning. So. You know, once the alerts start getting worked and closed out, that machine learning will then start teaching the model what is the true positive and what's the false positive. So you start augmenting all this behavior and all this AI machine learning together, you start getting better quality alerts, and you start reducing those false positives uh, that come out of alerts. So you save investigation time by not dealing with, you know, false positives is the big issue in all organizations. But even in Challenger and the smaller firms, false positives is still a big issue. Um, and the conversion rate, generally speaking, from an alert to a SAR is that sometimes it doesn't exceed 5%. So 5% conversion rate from alert to SAR it is considered quite good, um, which is pretty shocking if you think about it. Um, so 95% alerts are false positives and they get closed out. So if we can use the AI and the machine learning technology to really improve the quality of detection the quality of alert and improve the outcomes that are being achieved, you then save a lot more time for those investigators to do what what's you know important, which is looking at the practice stuff, doing thematic reviews, looking at you know things like the laundromats and really understanding if any customers are affected by by those sort of issues. 
Um, there's obviously issues around uh, machine learning and AI. There have to be controls in place because if you just let it run, especially the machine learning elements, then it may end up learning bad behavior. So you might then end up reducing uh, true positives out of the alert. So there has to be some controls in place. So I think it's great, but there also has to be some system where you check what the machines learn and you can maybe draw back on, on that activity if, if it's learned bad behavior. And then finally, in terms of technology solutions, I, I think this is the way forward, is a cloud-based platform, so a software service solution. And this is especially prevalent for the, the smaller organizations out there that, like I said, don't have millions and millions of pounds to spend on um, technology solutions. Uh, Cloud-based solutions are very quick to, um, compared to on-prem solutions, are very quick to implement. They are scalable, um, so organizations can you know, maintain the current sort of update software, comply with the regulations on an ongoing basis. Because they are cloud-based and you can plug into them, they are scalable. So if you go into a new jurisdiction, you know, it's, it's easy to expand that, that cloud platform into the new jurisdiction. You take on new products, it's easy to expand the cloud-based solution. So it, it's a nimble, simpler um, implementation. It's not as costly. It doesn't take as much time to implement. And ultimately, for the smaller organizations who aren't as complex as the big tier ones, they don't have as many product offerings, they don't operate as many jurisdictions, there's so much in terms of simplicity, there's so much less that the small organizations do compared to the big guys. They don't need often this full fat solution that does everything for everyone. Um, you can you have a smaller solution which is more cost effective at a price point, more nimble, and ultimately provides the core functionality that these small organizations need um, in order to remain compliant um, and perform the job to a, to a very high standard utilizing things like AI and, and consolidated case management platforms. Um, so they're the three main points I think a technology solution looks like today and what really benefits the industry. Okay. Um, Robert, I, I'm wondering, are firms trying to do things like this in-house or is much of it being outsourced? And, and if so, what needs to be considered when using third parties? Yeah, sure. So I think uh, it's a it's a mixture, but I would say it's predominantly outsourced, uh, at least in terms of the, the technology elements. So I think um, many financial institutions uh, want to outsource things as either they don't have the capability, or, or probably more likely the time resources to build it build internally. Um, they want to focus those investments on core banking platforms and customer customer facing technology such as mobile apps, and and then. Um, you know, be able to take by using third parties, they can uh, you know keep those resources for that kind of thing. I think on the analytics side, um, we've definitely seen a mixture of of internal and external analytics, and often that depends on the size of the institution. And in fact, we've got a bit of a sort of inverse um, bell curve really with with challenges and large tier ones want, often wanting to do the modelling themselves. Um, um, uh, around building models and things like that, and then on with the case of some of the ones in the middle, uh, firms sort of in the middle size uh, wanting to hand that off and get other people to do it um, for them. And so, but even within those gen these generalisations, some some customers want to do do both. They've got certain capacity to do modelling themselves and data science capabilities, and but not to do absolutely everything. 
Um, in terms of considerations, uh, I think there's, there's, um, there's a few. So one's agility. I mean, the speed to implement and, and getting the time to value is really key. Um, so having processes set up so that the um, data is ready correctly and uh, whether you're doing that internally or especially if it's going external, making sure there's the capabilities there to do that safely, you know, not be not falling foul of GDPR, for instance, and, and other things, um, but being able to do it quickly so that models get developed on the right set of data and uh, and can produce the right results at the right time uh, in that space. So move, moving on, uh, uh, after agility, I'd say is, is coverage and making sure that you can cover multiple payment types and different typologies. So fraud and AML together is quite can be quite important, and then. You know, in terms of analytics itself, you know, being able to, um, you know, particularly for smaller firms that don't have large amounts of data and, and levels of um, certain types of fraud or other typologies, you know, being able to get collective intelligence from other firms without sharing uh, sharing data can be quite key too, and a good reason to outsource um, that, that responsibility so you can respond faster to, to changing threats like we're seeing today. You know, being able to put in rules quicker and, and optimize models fast is key. And then I think probably the final point I'd, I'd make is just around synergies. You know, so uh, having a you know a single case manager um, across teams, cross cross sort of typologies between fraud, between AML. You know, can offer a great deal of uh, operational flexibility when you need to flex teams and they don't have to learn new systems and such things. Um, and, and that can also help break down silos between between areas as well. I think just just to add from our perspective, one of the things that we always consider is is this piece of technology crucial to our decision making or our processes or our compliance? And um, if it is, we then also look at things like uptime, reliability, business continuity plans. I mean, even before this crisis, understanding actually what sorts of things would make the system go down, how often are there maintenance windows, what does that actually mean in practice, um, and having failovers where you may have providers that can't guarantee 100% uptime that are absolutely crucial to your compliance requirements. Um, that's certainly something that we would always look at. So just, just from, a, from a legal perspective, I think it's really, really important to remember that even when you are outsourcing some of your uh, your CDD measures or, or other or other elements, that you, you can't then outsource your liability if those measures don't actually work and you do inadvertently uh, launder funds. So organisations should always kind of keep that in mind that they should conduct uh, sufficient audits on their outsourced providers. Uh, they should make sure that they fully uh, are, are happy with, with the work that those providers do to ensure that they uh, they don't suddenly find themselves with a liability that they didn't, didn't necessarily appreciate that they, they might have had. Absolutely. I mean, one, of the, one, of the key, one of the key tests that we do in our second line is actually testing, does our pest and sanction screening provider actually work? Is it actually on? Is it actually producing alerts? Because um, yeah. We can't rely on on technology. You know, we have to be comfortable that they are actually doing the job that we think they are doing. And, and I think that's absolutely key. Back when I was working uh, in, in a bank, I used to be the uh, the sanctions officer for, for a private bank, uh, and we had a couple of situations where the the, the lists were not updated overnight, 
uh, and, and that happened uh, as I say a few times, and that, and that caused a lot of problems. So you, it, it's important to ensure that your systems are robust enough to, to recognise when there may be issues uh, with your providers. Great. Okay. What, what, what seems to be clear is that both the, the rules and the tech are, are seemingly ever changing. So I'm, I'm thinking for for a final question to everybody: what, what what do you think is coming next in this space? I think we're going to see more and more um, traditional firms becoming digital. I think we're going to see a real shift in consumer behaviour where people have realised they don't necessarily um, need the high street bank. They are happy to take maybe a digital option. Um, they are happy to open open an account and go through a KYC process um, digitally without meeting somebody online. Um, I think, as I said earlier, it will be very interesting to see this sort of economic fallout of this and what that means for compliance functions and where people may seem want to want to um, use technology to either support or reduce headcount. And of course, more regulatory requirements that are, are coming up the line mean there's more to do. So, you know, there's more to streamline and just ensuring that actually using resources and using your people properly to make, make decisions and, and look at assessments rather than just using them to process information. I think from my side of things, one of the things we'll see is increasing convergence um, around uh, things like fraud and AML and also fraud and, and cyber uh, are there. Um, I think real-time payments uh, are increasing across the globe now, and, and that's not just uh, you know fast payments like we have in the UK, but real-time payments in the US, but, but also with things like SWIFT as well. So I think in a lot of people's minds, people think of SWIFT payments as, as being several days, but you know, their GPI platform now, I think over 50% of the payments go through, get to where they're going in 30 minutes, which is pretty real time for most purposes. And I think they've even done a test between Singapore and Australia where it's gone in 13 seconds. And I think that change to real time, the changes that the, the were happening and the probably being accelerated because of the current situation of increasing use of remote channels. Um, the combination of those things, I think that's, we, we're going to start to see uh, a shift from, and a requirement probably as well, uh, to, to more real-time detection in the uh, inbound payment space, uh, at least to counter some of the issues that we're seeing with uh, mules around uh, authorised uh, push payment fraud, for example. And I think just going on from what Rob was saying around the convergence, I, I think even more so than that, I think we're going to start seeing from a technology perspective uh, what I'd like to call contextualised monitoring. Uh, and what I mean by that is a move away from doing transaction monitoring in isolation or, or doing KYC in isolation and really starting to bring the analytics together and, and smash it together. So you start looking at KYC data against transaction data. So, you know, what does the customer tell you versus what are they actually doing? You know, potentially even bringing in things like voice and e-com surveillance. So, you know, if a customer calls up a bank or calls up a relationship manager and, you know, says some keywords which sound a bit suspicious, maybe potentially even bring that into the analytics monitoring. So, what have they said? What are they doing? What have they emailed? What are the transactions looking like? So, really starting to contextually monitor the customer from a 360 view and I think once you do that um, like I said earlier you start to really understand that customer quite intricately and if you can understand the customer intricately you can then understand what isn't normal for them and therefore you can best detect 
uh, or the idea is that you better detect uh, potential financial crime, terrorism um, offences, or any other potential issues with that particular customer. So that, that's what I see coming um, over the next year or so. Uh, and, and surrounding what, what each of Rebecca, Adam and, and Rob have all said, obviously you've got this, this clear trend in the, the legislative and regulatory environment that firms are expected to do more and more and more. We saw that with the fourth money laundering directive, we, we've seen it again with the fifth, and we're going to see it again with the sixth. So I, I think that is the, the trend when it comes to legislation. It is going to be a more is more situation. And with that obviously comes uh, costs, whether that is uh, going to be cost in respect of systems or, or in, in terms of personnel. Uh, so I think all organisations would be, would be advised to kind of keep a, a weather eye on, on what's, being, uh, what's going through the uh, UK Parliament, what's going through at an EU level as well, because uh, at least for the time being, there's going to be that, that regulatory alignment uh, with the EU for the, for the, for the, for the time being. Okay. Um, unless anybody else had any further points, um, I think we'll, we'll, we'll call it a day there. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much uh, to, to each of our panellists for, 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 for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Cheers, guys. And um, yeah, and thank you for um, joining us for this webinar. Thank you for listening to the FS Tech Podcast.